0: The emergence of COVID-19 has forced the legal industry to rapidly undergo a fundamental transformation. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today, we have a very special guest with us on the show, Professor Richard Susskind, OBE. Richard is an author, speaker, and independent advisor to major professional firms and to national governments. His latest books include Online Courts and the Future of Justice, the second edition of Tomorrow's Lawyers, and the Future of the Professions. Richard, it is great to have you here.
1: Thank you to be here, Jack. Thank you for involving me.
0: Richard, first and foremost, how are you and your family doing? How are things in London?
1: We're, we're well so far, Touchwood, We're uh, hunkered down, I think, for about five weeks now. Uh, my wife and I and my 25-year-old daughter has come back to stay with us. Uh, my two sons are living about an hour away. Uh, thankfully, none of us seem to yet have been troubled by the virus, but it's a deeply disturbing atmosphere. And it's very strange indeed. The city of London is pretty much uh, desolate, really. And there's far less trading, of course, far less activity. And so it's grim all around. We all just are trying to look after ourselves and follow the government's advice about social distancing.
0: And what would you say is most on your mind right now, Richard?
1: Well, putting aside, as I frankly never can, the health of my nearest and dearest, but uh, professionally, the thing that's been preoccupying me most has been the ability or otherwise of our courts to deal with this crisis because it is vitally important at a time of. International and national stress that our courts, our legal systems accessible, that the rule of law is still in play. And our court systems traditionally is such a physical system, dependent on people congregating together, that it is a real worry that without the ability of people so to gather, rule of law could be affected, confidence in the justice system impaired, and so forth. And so, as you kindly mentioned in the introduction, my previous and most recent work has looked at the question, really the question, is court a service or a place? And I and I argue it actually should be conceived as a service. I believe there are ways, number of ways that we can actually make justice services, make judges available remotely. So I've been involved in setting up something called Remote Courts uh, Worldwide, which is a website you can see at remotecourts.org, which is simply a way of gathering together information about what's going on around various countries, how different jurisdictions are responding to the challenge. And we have I think 28 countries have so far contributed to that. And I've been advising the government and the judiciary over here. And so we're seeing the emergence of uh, essentially three kinds of remote courts. Uh, The first is uh, the audio hearing where a judge uh, meets with the parties essentially by telephone conference. The second is some kind of video hearing when uh, The parties come together using something like Skype or Zoom, and the third is a paper hearing where the judge comes to decision on the basis of written submissions alone. I should just refine that slightly by saying the audio and video hearings can be partial or full, Uh, sometimes uh, a video hearing is partial where there is a physical hearing but some participants Are involved remotely, whereas a full virtual hearing is where there's no physical hearing, everyone's contributing virtually. So, what we've seen across the world is massive take up of this kind of technology. Uh, Last week in the UK, 85% of cases decided in our courts were decided through remote hearings. It's probably about 30 to 40% of the the standard caseload. Now I am anxious that this happens all around the world and that's the reason for that project. So that's been my preoccupation, my very minor contribu- contribution as it were to the to the war effort. And then the third thing I'm thinking about of course is my, my clients, the people I advise, the major international law firms, how they're adapting and what their clients are thinking about this time of, of great change. Uh, the macro question that I suspect you Uh, In light of your own book, especially uh, and I'm certainly thinking about is what does this mean for the longer term? Does this accelerate many of the effects that you and I have been anticipating or will we just revert to normal before long when the dust settles?
0: And what is your take on that question Richard? Do you you have an early perspective on what you believe will be the enduring changes this crisis might uh, might catalyze?
1: I think it'll bring about huge change. I think there's also a tendency, particularly for recent converts, to overstate the immediate impact. What we've seen unquestionably is judges and lawyers and clients communicating, collaborating in different ways, using technologies, video conferencing, even email, but uh, conferencing systems and so forth that have been about for many, many years. But I think it's important to say that this isn't fundamentally changing the business model. Uh, It's still clients receiving a a consultative advisory service. So what's quite interesting also is that the, the debate about, for example, artificial intelligence and how some of the actual work of lawyers and judges might be undertaken by machines, that's in a back burner just now. So I say that there has been massive progress in the way in which the traditional service is delivered, but not a paradigm shift in the nature of legal service delivery. The biggest, highest level point, I suppose, is it has opened the minds of many hitherto sceptics to the idea that legal work might be done differently. And it seems to me this is a great time, therefore, for us to, as, as rapidly as possible, to introduce those new technologies, these systems, these methods. Many of us have passionately believed we'd improve the quality of legal service, improve access to justice. We believe for years these should be in place. We now have a, uh, an opening. Uh, while, it is that, while it is that people are essentially receptive to different ways of working, this is something I think we need to push through quite aggressively.
0: One of the phrases you use in your, your book that I, I quite like is uh, one that you use with your, your clients quite frequently, as you mentioned in the book, which is, you can't change the wheels on a moving car. And, and that yes. being one of the reasons you see so much resistance to change in law firms and, and courts alike. And, and perhaps because of coronavirus, the, the car has stopped at a time that nobody anticipated it would. And and there's an opportunity to do a bit of a, a retrofit. Uh, can, can you comment on whether you think this, this pause and slowdown that we're seeing across the entire economy, uh, with many court systems and with many law firms will, will be an opportunity or should be regarded as an opportunity to, to change the tires on the car, so to speak?
1: I think, I mean, my answer to the question, how do you change the wheel in a moving car, is in fact that you start a new car altogether. Because it seems mm. to me the mistake is often trying to graft new, if I can push the metaphor a little bit further, uh, uh, graft more technology onto the old car, as it were, uh, not really, to fundamentally change what 's going on, but to systematize to turbocharge the current car, my argument is we need new vehicles, and in the court that 's what the remote court is it 's not a turbocharged version of the old court it 's something quite different, and we need to think the same in legal practice i didn 't want to just say just while we have qualification uh, to a previous comment we 've also got to be alive to the fact that home working is not sustainable for everyone. I worry right. about people 's I worry about people's mental health, I worry about the sheer logistics of a young family with kids working at home and so forth. And so the best way of seeing this just now, this experience is a a massive unscheduled pilot from which we've got to learn a lot. We really should be thinking deeply uh, about capturing as much data of of, of this experience as possible, seeing during this period what can we do better using technology than we had not imagined. Also reflecting on what was good enough And frankly, recognizing these areas where, with all the will in the world, with all the technology in the world, we still need some kind of face-to-face personal interaction. But we need to be thinking about this systematically. Um, In a way, I I often draw the distinction between the social entrepreneur and the the social scientist. The social entrepreneur is the person uh, who has the gut feeling that some major societal good can perhaps be attained through this fundamental change without much empirical evidence to support it. But if they're gifted, they're usually right. The social scientists is far more systematic and they spend lots of times analyzing the data. Uh, In in a way, we need to steer a middle ground here Um, because in the light of the experience we've had, we have to think to ourselves, what does a good court system look like? What does great legal service feel like? And uh, yes.
0: A a couple of ideas to unpack there. Number one, with the courts and the the system, the the situation they've been forced into amidst this, this crisis, do you believe they'll they'll actually build that that new car to, to go back to your your metaphor and leapfrog over what many I believe we're advocating for in terms of fairly incremental improvements and instead realize that this completely transformed view of what courts need to be should be realized with uh, aggressively against this kind of a, a a crisis
1: I think what we're seeing just now in most courts sensible courts around the world is what they're doing is tackling the less complex, lower value, lesser impact cases, and putting in place this new car for that. I I think once you've got that new vehicle in place, we'll build on that and we will add incrementally. So it's not an overwrite revolution, so we suddenly are conducting jury trials uh, across uh, Skype. That's not happening, it shouldn't happen, it seems to me. What we should be doing fairly quickly is addressing the very high volume of cases which, as I say, are relatively low value, putting in place robust technology from that, and in light of this experience, grow far more incrementally towards embracing the whole system. So again, and i probably say this is the last time we should use the metaphor, as it were, the the, the new car will get bigger and bigger, uh, but the old car will run in parallel, and eventually the old car will run out of steam, and the, and the new car will have taken on the entire workload. All of this is to say I don't anticipate this is a change over the next uh, 18 months. I, I think this has been the pilot study over a six-month period, and uh, if I had to put time scales on it, in my book I'd said that uh, I thought transformation of course, is a 10 year exercise. This will probably change it into a five or six year exercise. Right. Uh, I was going to back to your earlier question, which I consciously wasn't really a- as- answering. And, and it, I want to draw the distinction between automation and transformation, because a lot of what we've seen so far is still automation is still using technology to streamline and optimize the old ways of working. The real opportunity here is transformation. It's to allow ourselves to deliver services, whether it be court services or legal services, in ways that previously weren't imaginable. So the question of making the leaps an interesting one. I think people find it quite instinctively acceptable to render your current service more efficient through technology. They find it far more challenging to think that we sweep it away entirely uh, and we change the way we work but i think if you look also at all the the great case studies of technology over the last 20 or 30 years very few of them represent the automation of previously existing businesses the really exciting thing about almost all the poster children in the world of technology is they've allowed us to do things that previously weren't feasible or practicable and that's the kind of mindset we need to have i think in law not just in the courts but in law firms too and alternative legal providers
0: and that truly seems what what is happening and i'm curious what you're you're seeing amongst your 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 clients and with the unique view you have on the, the industry mm-hmm. as a whole are you seeing an embrace of of this new way of of working and it's it's almost a new way of working enabled by technology rather than really being about the technology this isn't so much about the the cloud per se, but the fact that the cloud enables people to work in a distributed way, it allows people eight time zones away to have a, a face-to-face real-time conversation. Are you seeing law firms really embrace almost the, the people aspect of this, this change in a new way of letting people work and, and trusting people to get work done in this, in this new way?
1: this is not a particularly helpful response, but I think it's too early to know. We're in the first of five phases that my son and I have identified in the recovery of professional firms. And the first phase is mobilization, which is frankly, putting in place a stable alternative way of working. It's making sure your people are okay. It's shoring up weak parts of the business. It's thinking about short term survival. It's recognizing that there isn't an option other than for people to be working from home. So to, how do we best support it? I think also in this phase, there's an opportunity missed for law firms to stay close to the clients because I'm getting early views from clients that law firms uh, are only really interested in them if they want to be if a project for which uh, fees can be gained, whereas the relationships will really be deepened here where law firms help, for example, in-house legal departments move from their organizations to set up at home, because many of them don't have the technology to support their operations and running. It is quite frantic out there. We're moving into this, the second phase, which is the, the phase where we're locked down, but uh, uh, the initial lockdown was still overlapping with the mobilization, making sure the connections are okay, making sure people have got laptops or whatever it is. Um, right. we're, we're now seeing... Uh, uh, a new normal, the new normal of everyone in the workforce is working from home. Uh, all our clients are working from home. All their clients are working from home. And it's too early, I think, to establish any set patterns to recognize any, anything that will either stick for good or, or, or will quickly be rejected. So everyone's feeling their way. But what is fascinating is that many lawyers and judges and clients who a month ago would have rejected the ways they are now working, are now ext- accepting it as every day as an everyday reality. So I say it's a question of trying to capture information about that experience, get a sense from clients about what's working well enough. Because this whole phrase that I, I like, uh, good enough is good enough, for many clients of law firms, they've said for years that their law firms are great, but over-engineered. Uh, Whereas now a lot of the service is more pragmatic, it's rougher and ready, but it actually delivers the good. So the feedback I've had in doing a minor research exercise with general counsel just now is actually the service they're getting and they're giving is, according to the multiple choices I've given them, is good enough. And that's an interesting test because actually good enough a month ago may have looked sloppy. So we may refine our ideas of what it is to deliver an adequate service. It's not just in law, we're seeing it in medicine. When Daniel and I wrote our book about the future of the professions and we suggested that doctors, would see patients over Skype, this was regarded as farcical. Now people regard it as a privilege that you can still access your doctor and for many interactions it's sufficient uh, that you have this connection by video. So our perceptions are changing. And uh, I don't believe that we will just revert to type because I think our eyes will have been open. And certainly when it comes to policymakers and strategists, uh, people will be thinking deeply about the future in light of this experience.
0: I was listening to your comment around the client perspective. I was listening to uh, an interview that Sarah Swisher was doing on her recode podcast with a, with a prominent VC. And his comment was, amidst this COVID-19 crisis, the the law firm he works with most closely on deals where everyone has been work from home for the last three or four weeks is more responsive and delivering better service to him than when they were in their fancy downtown San Francisco uh, AAA office space. Mm-hmm. And And his comment was, I, I would prefer they actually remain in this mode on the other side mm-hmm. of the, the crisis, but he expects in turn there to be a a commensurate drop in uh, his fees when they can walk away from that incredibly expensive lease they have uh, in, in downtown San Francisco.
1: Yeah, it's well put, and almost more compelling when it comes from a client than it comes from a, a commentator like me. But that's got to be right, and I, I think there will be an expectation amongst savvy clients that uh, that the kind of working practices which have delivered a, a responsive and presumably in turn lower cost service, with overheads are lower. Uh, that should become the norm in years to come. So I think it will be a big shakeup. We've got a huge community out there, for example, in North America of chief operating officers in legal departments who will be watching this very, very carefully because they too have been advocating the kind of efficiencies that have been forced upon us in the last month or so.
0: So Richard, you touched on it briefly. I'd love to go a bit deeper into the the article you're referring to on the five phases of recovery from COVID-19 that you you co-authored with your son Daniel maybe you could first of all uh mention the uh the book uh that you co-authored with your your son and it appears that that being uh prolific is uh, runs in the, the the family uh would love to hear more about that book and it, this article uh that you published on linkedin in particular would love to hear uh, about the the five stages of recovery that you uh, uh described in more depth there
1: yes of course so daniel's an economist uh, who who is at Oxford. He, he teaches at Oxford. He, he also more recently wrote a book called uh, A World Without Work. He's interested in labor economics and the changes that we're seeing because of technology in particular in the way people work. And he and I in 2015 published a book called The Future of the Professions, where we looked at eight professions. We looked at medicine and law and audits and tax. We looked at architecture, consulting, uh, teaching. We even looked at the clergy. And our question was, to what extent was technology changing these professions? And we identified essentially two futures. One, where we said it was reassuringly familiar. And I've mentioned this earlier. That's where technology is used to automate the work of the professions. And the other, which is far more challenging, where the technologies come along and displace uh, conventional professional work and increasingly capable systems, as we call it. Uh, other people would call it AI, but systems taking on more and more tasks that hitherto we thought could only be undertaken by human beings. So it's interesting because he and I are, are just... Well, we're just about to finish the preface of our, uh, of our paperback edition of that book, and, and along comes COVID. And, uh, of course, many of the effects that we were both discussing and predicting have been accelerated through COVID. But we wanted to take a step back from our own conversations over the last few weeks and try to get some kind of shape out of this. And so we, and, and who knows if we're right, but uh, we identify five stages of recovery. The, the first is uh, what we call an touched on this earlier too, mobilization, which was the, essentially the move from the office to, to remote working on all that, that structurally, culturally, uh, um, organizationally involves. Then there's a period of lockdown, uh, which we're all in just now, where we're isolated and, therefore, can only operate in the way we're doing. After that, there's a period which we call, uh, or the phase, the third phase, called emergence. And this is a slightly complicated um, phenomenon in, in two ways. One is that um, we anticipate in some, but maybe not all countries, uh, but the relaxation of the lockdown won't apply to all members of the community. People who have suffered from uh, COVID and to some extent are immune, and perhaps young people as well, may be first to be released back into the community, whereas people uh, who are older or in poorer health uh, will ask to be more cautious. And that we say, creates a very strange and unprecedented schism in society between those who've been liberated and those who are, who are, who are right. not. Uh, and that will both be within organizations. Some of your people will be at home, some will be in the office, uh, as well as with your clients and your customer base, some will be at home, some will be the office. So it's a very strange phenomenon. We, we simply note that. But the second phenomenon in the emergence phase is that, I'm afraid, uh, unless the lockdown, the release from lockdown is well, well managed into emergence, there are likely to be second, third, fourth, fifth peaks, resurgences, and we might have to loop back around into the second phase of lockdown. So we would love to think it's a linear progression from mobilization through lockdown, through emergence, and then into the next phase, which we call surge. But we do accept that in some countries, and we fear many, Actually, there'll be a loop back round into that second phase where we have to lock down to, to, to put a lid on it. The, the, the fourth phase of surge is, uh, uh, is when we expect the economy uh, and trading to be quite vibrant once we're all released back, as it were. It's a lot, essentially, the economy has been switched off. It's not like a classic recession. It's not like 2010. This is right. something quite different. And when the tap stops, stops flowing, The restaurants will want to open, the planes will want to fly, the deals will be done, the lawyers will want to serve them, the courts will be open and so forth. And so we expect uh, a surge, a a spike in economic activity. And then after that, there'll be uh, what we call equilibrium, which others would call the next new normal, where we will settle down into a new way of working. And that, as you and I have already discussed, uh, uh, I think it, it won't be... It certainly won't be a reversion to six months ago, nor will it be the the technology fueled uh, AI-enabled technology future that you and I also discussed. But I think there'll be a far greater demand from clients and consumers to retain the online ways of working that have been of benefit to them. And that alone will give us a very different economy and society
0: one of the ideas you talk about in in that article richard is that uh, and to to quote you wise firms will be those that most creatively use the increase in the non-chargeable time of their fee earners and and you identify this as one of the opportunities for the 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 wise firms uh in this crisis C- can you delve into what you you mean by that in a bit more depth
1: well what i had to mind here is that i think the demand for legal services is going to go down during this period. I think in one of a variety of ways, law firms will reduce either the numbers of people they have or the numbers of hours these people work. And I do say also in that, or we say in that paper, it's important that firms stick to their, their values and their purpose. I dearly hope that uh, people don't simply let people go indefinitely and people stand by their their staff. uh, And that that troubles me as a a possibility. But I do think even those lawyers who are retained uh, and other professionals who retain the businesses will be working fewer hours than they were traditionally. And what I have in mind here is there's an opportunity if, say, you're not working 1,800 chargeable hours uh, and you're working 1,200 chargeable hours, I it's an opportunity for that 600 hours to be used rather meaningfully. Now some of it perhaps could be pro bono work, but I do think there's a parallel challenge that could also be met. The parallel challenge is how do lawyers retrain and retool themselves and prepare for the 20s at a time when most of us anticipate traditional legal skills will be supplanted by other legal skills. So I've said for years that Laws the future need to be legal knowledge engineers, legal project managers, legal risk managers, many other sorts of uh, skills they need to take on board. And people have said to me, frankly, we don't have time to change. And I say, well, actually, maybe you do. Maybe this is an opportunity for people who are isolated for 12, 14 weeks, however long it will be, actually to do some self-training. I think it's an opportunity uh, for law firms to provide training uh, and to encourage their people to develop in the direction that we know they need to develop. But there's also the possibility, for example, of longstanding knowledge management projects. Again, the standard mantra has been, would love to capture and share our knowledge for future reuse, but we're too busy serving clients. Well, this is a time perhaps to try and synthesize and stabilize and pull together some of, your, some of your content. Also a time perhaps to develop online systems and services because these systems need to have legal content which require lawyers who again are normally said not to be available well they might be available so my thought was if we have some as it were spare time let's use this in ways that are productive for the business because to repeat i hear again and again we've not got the hours to do this well perhaps now you do
0: right and and let's shift to Digging on technology for for a moment, and, and maybe this is another investment that can be made while while we're we have a bit more free time on our hands. Uh, in, in an article that you recently authored for the Times, uh, the the headline of that article was "Technology is key to stopping coronavirus, wiping out law firms." Um, and I'd love for you to explore why you believe that is is true, and 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 maybe if you believe that will actually see an acceleration in the adoption of technology due to coronavirus?
1: Yeah, the first thing I should say, and I hope there's no editors from The Times listening, is there's an author of columns of, you have no control over what the sub-editors do, they make up the heading. So right. uh, I think that's a rather melodramatic rendition of what followed. Nonetheless, my point was that it's hard to imagine, and I said both of law courts, and of law firms that they could survive without embracing technology, so if law firms said we don't use video conferencing or we're not pre- prepared to to use the collaborative software that perhaps our clients are using uh, their their existence would be pretty short-lived it, it seemed to me at that stage that unless you were prepared to communicate and collaborate and cooperate with clients in different ways, then clients would very quickly go to other other law firms and if you weren't able to use video conferencing, you wouldn't be able to conduct yourself in many remote courts. Similarly, if the courts uh, were to continue offering any kind of service, this would have to be done remotely. There was no choice. Uh, And I was saying, imagine it was 1990. Uh, Remarkable if this had happened then, would have had the telephone. We would have had nothing else. We would have no way to effectively to send documents to one another. We would have no way to have this kind of interaction that you and I are having. And there would have been no question of using a Slack or a Hype or a Teams or, or whatever. And so I, I think we are to this very limited extent, fortunate that this crisis arose at a time when we have technologies that can help us through. I also pointed out in that article that, that this in turn creates a remarkable vulnerability uh, because as never before, we are depending on the internet and our power and communication technologies. And I, I cross refer to a book written by one of our politicians, Oliver Letwin, uh, called Apocalypse How, a, a great title. Um, and he was showing how we are, as economists and societies, so terribly dependent on related networks of power and communications. And should these fail, we'd be in deep trouble. And so I, I closed the article rather negatively by saying uh, we have to make sure that our systems re- remain robust through this period. But the point was re- the rather obvious one that, uh, dressed up as often one does when you're writing a column, but, but frankly, if you don't use technology scenario, you're not going to be go able to serve clients and they're going to go elsewhere. Now, what does this mean for the, the, the world of technology? Uh, I, I say again that it is interesting that uh, firms are now thinking they're fully in the technology era because they're using video conferencing and other collaboration tools. For me, it's still scratching the surface because the real challenge is not simply to computerize our communication and collaboration patterns, it's to look at the nature of legal service and wonder whether or not clients' legal problems might be solved in different ways. And that's a move away from the one-to-one consultative advisory service model to the one-to-many information services model and the enabling technologies there will be ai and others which over time will take on many of the tasks and i said this earlier that in the past only human lawyers could take on to stress again the significance of this moment is that lawyers who would never have dreamt of video conferencing or, or using other software that they have found as part of their everyday lives uh, will surely now be more open to the use of technologies in other parts of their business. So for a technology company, this is an opportunity. And again, at a time where I'm finding people more accessible, uh, I think it's easier to get in touch with people, to either to organize a demo with people. At a time when people are more accessible, uh, tech companies can be reaching out to the legal community and say, do you know you could also be doing A, B, C, and D, and not just in this crisis, but, but for a right. long time.
0: And maybe this has to do with technology, maybe it doesn't, but I think in every significant economic downturn uh, we've had, there's, there's always emerged companies and, and law firms alike that emerge stronger and as winners as, as a result of the crisis, and those that, are the losers, essentially, and, and come out significantly weakened or, or maybe even having failed entirely. What do you believe is going to be the, the differentiator between those two groups of firms when we look back on the COVID-19 crisis?
1: Interestingly, I think it's going to be leadership. And uh, I, I can see this as I look around court systems around the world. You can see that the jurisdictions that have been forward-looking and ambitious and who've gotten the bit between their teeth at this difficult moment have had proactive chief justices who've been driving the profession and driving fellow judges. And I can see many court systems that have barely changed and courts are essentially not open where I know the chief justices to be conservative and reluctant to use technology. By analogy within law firms, I'm seeing some managing partners who are desperately hoping, as frankly we all are, that this will be over very soon so we can get back to normal. And others are seeing this as a way of essentially reaching the future that they've identified for many years. But the real leaders are those who are sharing a vision with the people within their organization. It's the people who are motivating the staff at a time when many are feeling down. It's those who are leading by example by embracing the technology and in using it in errors themselves. It's those who are reaching out to clients and having conversations less about what can we sell to you and more can we understand the problems and dilemmas you face, feeding that back into their firm so the firm can respond accordingly. I believe when we look at the many firms that will struggle during this period, and sadly those that will fail we will see that those that had strong, purposeful, tech-inspired leaders will trump those that actually have had more conservative individuals at the Tiller.
0: Something you, you touched on uh, in, in your writing and you, you touched on your response here is, is around leadership and, uh, and also its relation to supporting your, your staff, especially with respect to mental health and there's, there's so many people that are justifiably struggling in this in environment from a mental health perspective can you speak uh, a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of uh approaches best practices uh and, and what you'd regard as great leadership when it comes to helping uh staff that have been foisted into this distributed work from home environment
1: Yes, I, I recommend you first of all to the work of Larry Richards, who's been writing really good material on this. He's a psychologist, a uh, lawyer, who's been uh, working in this area for a long time. Again, the good leaders, first of all, are those who are empathizing, those who recognize there's an issue here, and frankly, that's not all. That's not all leaders. The good leaders are those who are communicating and providing an environment in which those who are struggling are able to confide in others and will receive support accordingly. The good leaders are those who are providing professional support via via, uh, psychotherapists and so forth. The good leaders are those that are identifying that not all people who are working at home or working in large houses with gardens, many of them working in small places with screaming children who are trying to uh, be homeschooled and so forth. Uh, The good leaders are also recognized that that, for many, I'm afraid, troubled houses, actually coming to work is a release from some pressure at home. So living full time in the pressure cooker is very difficult indeed. So a lot of it is about understanding and recognition of the difficulties people face. And then it's it's providing this environment that allows people freely to speak with their bosses about the difficulties they're suffering from and practical help in the shape of therapy. I happen to be married to a psychotherapist and she is consulting widely from home just now because people are indeed struggling in this new environment.
0: Richard, I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about how you think this will, this will end. And I, I know this is a, 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 a fraught topic with many different perspectives and a lot of uncertainties, so um, I'll, uh, I, I'd be happy for you to punt on it if you don't feel comfortable answering. But you, you talked a little bit about, it, both in this article and in your, your interview here, about this concept of a, a staggered restart of the, mm. uh, of the economy. And potentially needing to have, have essentially an oscillating pattern between uh, some return to normal and then if, if the virus starts to uh, emerge again, going back into a, a bit of a lockdown. C- can you describe from, from your perspective, what kind of time frame you think we're on when things might begin even that staggered approach back to normal and how long you believe that might last?
1: Well, I really am a specialist in this. What I'm I'm hearing, is you'll be hearing as well, though, from the the leading pharmaceutical companies is that it's unlikely there would be a, and from people like Bill Gates, too, uh, there's no one like Bill Gates, in fact, but from, from Bill Gates, that it's unlikely there'll be a sufficiently tested, widely available vaccine for about 18 months in which case it seems to me that will have profound implications for our, our economy. Uh, but a, a couple of observations on that. One is just an untutored observation that if we're seeing anything in the world of science and technology just now, we're seeing disruptors who can throw conventional timeframes up in the air. And so my hope is that we have, including fields like AI, a world community of tremendously bright and able people who might in one way or another be able to shorten these timescales towards vaccine. Again, my untutored view is that the priority is perhaps less vaccine and more treatment. If we had medicines and therapies that effectively reduced for almost all people the fatal fatal effects or the effects of, uh, uh, of deep illness Uh, then that would give people the confidence to go out into the community and would give the the economy the confidence again. And my sense from what I read is we're more likely to have a fairly effective treatment before a fully effective vaccine. So uh, I I would like to think uh, that this is not a tragedy that will continue for years that this is a a tragedy that will carry on for some months. I think those who believe that we will be back to normal after the next lockdown is lifted in this country after three weeks, uh, I I think are perhaps over optimistic. Uh, My guess is by the, my hope and guess is by the tail end of the year, we'll see some kind of normality return. My fear from the model is that we, under all sorts of pressures, We go into the emergence phase too quick, uh, the virus builds up again, and then we have to loop back into lockdowns. I'd far prefer to see a measured linear progression through these phases than three or four loops back into lockdowns. It seems to me that the the patience that people have for lockdown, the commitment to lockdown, uh, and so forth, is easier to maintain first time around than it will be second, third, and fourth uh, times around. I ideally hope that, Jack, that you and I will be able to shake hands and uh, and have a, a, a drink together before the end of the year. You can't be 100% confident of that, but that's the kind of, and I'm an optimist, that's the kind of time frame I have in mind.
0: I, I hope you're right. It feels like... Uh eons ago that we uh, sat down together uh, in, in Boston in the, in the, in the fall and I, I hope we'll have a chance to reconvene soon. Uh, R- Richard, there's one concept I'd love for you to explore a, a bit more fully before we wrap up. And I, I think one of the ideas you've, you've talked about frequently is this idea that technology and the, the opportunity presents is really to deliver legal services in a way that they were not delivered previously. Um, and and your your new book maybe that applies to to courts equally well. There's an opportunity for them to deliver their service in a, in a completely new way. If you're a law firm in this crisis, looking at the crisis as an opportunity to change the way the, that you work, to change the way that you find and work with your clients, what's your perspective on on how they should approach that problem and how, from a mindset perspective? They should approach thinking about how they can deliver legal services in a way that maybe it wasn't possible or maybe they didn't think was possible before this this pandemic set in.
1: It's very hard at this moment to get people to be thinking about this at all and I think going back to one of my earlier answers the difference between a good leader and a good manager is uh, great managers will be taking us through the next few weeks great leaders will be ensuring their managers are doing this but we'll also be looking at the long-term health of the business. These great leaders will also be thinking and sensing that life will be very different. And you're absolutely right. My The mindset I would recommend is not a mindset that 2022 will be a streamlined version of 2019. The real opportunities here will be to be delivering services that or delivering services in a way that weren't possible or perhaps even conceivable in the past. The, the basic method I use here is something called, uh, well, it, partly it's outcome thinking and partly blank like sheep thinking. Outcome thinking is the idea that often best expressed, I think, when you think of medicine, where I tell the tale of giving a talk to about 2,000 neurosurgeons, and they asked me to be controversial. So my opening line was, patients don't want neurosurgeons, gasp an audience. Uh, I said, patients want health. And uh, you might think, I said to them as an AI guy, my background's in AI, uh, as well as law, I said, you might think I'm here to talk about robotic surgery, and there are huge advances being made there, but we're still using the word surgery there. Uh, uh, but isn't it the case, I said, I don't know, I said maybe 20, 50 years from now, uh, we'll look back and think it's unbelievable we used to cut bodies open. Because right. the future of, of uh, healthcare is, non, is non-invasive. And so I said, you're asking the wrong question if you're asking me, what's the future of surgery? The question you should be asking is, how in the future will we be solving problems to which surgeons today are the best answer? And that's the same question, sorry, long answer here, but that's the same question that lawyers need to ask. How in the future will we be solving problems to which lawyers today are the best answer? And what that helps you do is focus on what it is that clients want, because very often what we think they want is a cheaper, quicker, better version of what they have today. Outcome thinking encourages us to try and get to the equivalent of what health is in medicine. It's a bit of my old story that people want, uh, they don't want power drills, they want holes in the wall. So we've got to be continually asking ourselves, what are the outcomes that clients want? And I say there's two kinds of outcomes that we should be thinking about when we're thinking this way. There's practical outcomes and there's emotional effects. Practical outcomes are things like, yeah, I want a, I want a contract, or I want this dispute resolved, or I want to know if I can start trading in Burma or whatever it is. Uh, the emotional effects, we, we ask about far less, where I do it more and more as a speaker, where I, I think we did this before this conversation. I didn't do did it expressly in this way. As a speaker, I often ask, how do you want the audience to feel? Because a managing partner, often when I'm speaking to a partner's conference, will say, I want you to shake them up a bit. I want you to put the, the fear of God into them. Uh, others will say, go easy on them. They're not ready for the, right. the, full, the full throttle. And that really helps me in, because you might say, what's the outcome they want? It's a good speech. But actually, the outcome I want is the emotional, at least in part, is the emotional effects those who've asked me to speak are after. Similarly, we don't do that enough with, uh, with our clients in law. We don't, And you cover quite a lot of this in, in your own book. There's a sensitivity to this ish, issue. It's the empathy point. It's getting right. into their shoes. It's understanding how it is they want to feel at the end of this deal or this dispute. Uh, and what is it they're wanting? Is it inspiration? Is it reinsurance? Is it I want to right. sleep well at night? And so forth. And so uh, the first bit of this question, outcome thinking, is to think, backwards from the practical uh, outcomes and the emotional effects that clients want. The other thing I do is this exercise called blank sheet thinking, which is, and I can only give a brief uh, summary of it here, is when you gather together people within your firm and you say, let's start with a blank sheet of paper. Uh, Imagine we were building this business from scratch. We didn't have a building, we didn't have technology, we didn't have all the staff, we just have the reputation we have in particular areas and we have the clients. If you had the opportunity to start from scratch, in the knowledge of what technology now can achieve, what kind of business would you build? What people would you have in it? What services would you deliver as between say high end complex service to lower end or high volume work? Uh, How much technology would you use and so forth? And the whole process I go through with this, uh, essentially asking people to imagine a very different world. And what's fascinating is that almost all lawyers come up with a, a model that's very different from the current model. Uh, and my trick is to say actually you've created your vision there. That's your strategy. Because I distinguish between vision-based strategy and legacy-based strategy. Vision-based strategy is having some kind of ideal point in the horizon to which you're all enthusiastically driving. Legacy-based strategy is walking backwards into the future contained and constrained by where you are today, where many partners will say Of course, we are where we are. And so there's no point in having having all this airy-fairy thinking We've really got to be thinking practically. I say forget that for a second, but that's not the convent I don't speak about vision and legacy when I'm doing this exercise. I just say Imagine you are a blank sheet and that liberates most lawyers to allow themselves to be vision-based so if you think of outcomes and you allow yourself to do a blank sheet exercise, you'll find out you come up with a, a whole different range of services and a whole different organizational structure. And I think you could do both of these exercises online. You don't need to be in the same physical room. So that's what I would do if I were them.
0: A, a flavor of that blank sheet exercise, and I really loved your description there, that, uh, that I've gone through frequently is, think about a competitor that could take your current business out and imagine what you would be afraid of in that competitor. And, and, and as you point out, there's aspects of your, your answer to what your new business model should look like in the way that you think about the, the competitor that would uh, potentially terrify you.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, Jack Welsh in one of his books tells the story about when he got all his leaders together in, the, in GE and he said to them, um, he called the project destroyyourbusiness.com. Right, uh, uh, Or did he call it Grow Your Business? One or the other. The, the point of the story was that he said to these individuals, and this is around the time of the dot-com boom, he said, there's this thing called the internet coming along, and I want each of you to think how it is that this would destroy your business. And then I want you to say to me how you're going to protect yourselves. That's right. He called it dot destroyyourbusiness.com. And then about a week later, he says, cancel that project. He said if we can think if we can think of ways in which that our business can be destroyed, we should be leading in these ways. And he called it growyourbusiness.com. It's a great lesson.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, Richard, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Uh, and I've I've really enjoyed the unique and powerful, powerful perspective you've been able to uh to offer to to wrap up. I'm wondering if there's a, a parting thought or message you'd like to to leave our listeners addressing them either as legal professionals or or simply as human beings or or both?
1: I think this is, it's an interesting time. I I think just to revisit what it is we're doing in the short time we're given. Uh, We're all so very often so tied up and caught up in our everyday activity. There's so much to do. We can barely get through our to-do list. I think most of us a little more space and that space, I think is not only an opportunity to spend time, many of us with our loved ones, but it's also to reappraise what matters to us in life. And so that's the opportunity we've been given. And I urge people not simply to rush back into the old ways of working, but just as I say of the business, identify what's gone well and identify what's gone not so well, we should do the same with our own lives.
0: That's a wonderful note to end on. Richard, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, stay healthy out there uh, in London and uh, enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thank you, Jack. And same to all of our listeners.
0: Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal and Derek Bolan and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.